0: Have you seen me dice bag?
1: The Grognard Files
0: Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the northwest of England, and I'm totally and utterly surrounded by my stuff. Here on my right is the great library of RPGs and my grognard files. On my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll. Uh, I'll just get that a tap. Ah, yes. The Eternal Champion has appeared as Kara in Captain Kronos. For once again, this podcast will be sticking a shoggoth in it to make everyone happy. We are returning to Call of Cthulhu, like we have done all of our gaming life. There haven't been many reviews of the Grogpod for a while, but we appreciated this comment over on the Discord server from Scott R. So, I discovered the Grognard files back in February. I read the entire blog first and then started listening to the podcast. It quickly became my favourite thing to listen to and lulled me to sleep on many nights. Don't worry, I rewound to hear the stuff I'd missed once I'd fallen asleep. I've truly enjoyed listening and loved the community that exists around it. So it is with sadness that I report that i finally caught up with the podcast and must now wait and I'm constrained to one podcast a month. Please keep up the great work here, Dirt the Dice, Blithe, Daily Dwarf and Ed and all the others who've made such a great community, podcast and blog experience. It was great to virtually meet Scott at Virtual Grog Meet last month and admire his large wedding TARDIS. Thanks for sending the message. Reviews, likes, subscriptions is what keeps us going, so thanks for taking the time to do it. We're about to play a new campaign series. Next month, we begin Call of Cthulhu's Children of Fear, a new book from Chaosium with an adventure that travels from China to India in the 1920s following the Spice Road, filled with evocative horrific incidents. It's only available electronically at the time of recording, but the hard copy is due soon. Kersiem and the honourable policy of ensuring that products are available for simultaneous worldwide distribution. However, the past year has brought the uncertainty of a global pandemic, a blocked Suez Canal and Merry England, taking the United Kingdom out of the world's largest and most efficient trade bloc. But hey, we've got the sovereign right to wait and pay a bit more for things. It's ready when it's ready is the best policy, and I'm looking forward to having the hard copy in my hands. In the meantime, I've been getting to grips with the campaign in preparation for it commencing next month. I'm really pleased to have Lynne Hardy on the podcast, the author of Children of Fear and the associate editor of the Call of Cthulhu line, to talk about her formative years in role-playing and how the campaign developed. Someone who's played part of it already is Tristan Narborough, a member of the Grog Squad who lives in Japan. He sent us a great piece telling the story of the first game he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him. Finally, I'm joined by Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer in the Zoom of role-playing rambling. He's in a particularly garrulous mood. It's as if he's been locked away from gaming for a month or so, and we talk about some of the Call of Cthulhu settings that we've played in, and what happens when you stick a Shoggoth in history. I'll be back at the end with the usual parish notices. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forward, or our gaming of the past has shaped the game as we are today. And in the Zoom of role-playing rambling, I've got... KCM's line developer for Call Cthulhu, Lynne Hardy. Hello, Lynn. Hello. Great to see you. Thank you very much. I think I, f- I need to start with an apology, Lynne, because I was introduced to you at a convention at UK Games Expo. Do you remember conventions?
2: I do, vaguely.
0: And I was introduced to you in the bar and I said hello. And then Pookie, my chaperone, turned up in his little waistcoat and said I had to go and get the last train. Oh, and no. so I was I was dashed off Across the <laughs> the, the Bellardian NEC, leaving a glass Dot Martin boot on the. It's like, I, that was it. So so, so sorry about that.
2: Right. <laughs> Trains wait for no man or woman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So so where in the world are you at the moment? So we're, we.
2: Newcastle is sort of like at the top of the triangle. We've got Sunderland to one side and Durham to the other side, and we're somewhere on that. In that triangle.
0: Oh, it's beautiful around there, isn't it? I've it is. To, it's ho- ho-
2: gorgeous around here. Yeah. Yeah. We're not too far away from uh, Pension Monument. Um, so, you know, we can go and say hello to the Lampton Worm every time we feel like it.
0: Yeah. I've spent some time in Craster. Um, yeah, it's on lovely back up course. there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so the first question we always ask is, uh, what was the first game that you played and who were you playing with?
2: It was RuneQuest. And I was playing with um, a group of uh, friends I'd made at Freshers' Week in university. uh, John Wilson, um, Richard Bull, uh, James Derrick, a guy called Jim Davis, uh, and I think also someone called Matthew, but his surname now is escaping me. Because that was 1989, so I am allowed to start forgetting people's names now. Uh, I'd gone to university. I knew about role-playing games. I'd never played one, and uh, I went to Freshers' Week. I was in the the late and much lamented Ethel Williams Hall at Newcastle University out in Longbenton, and because it was three miles out and the metros didn't run very late, it had its own bar, so they had their Freshers' Week party in there, their first night party, and I wandered down in my Seattle Seahawks top, uh, and this, you know, this group of two or three lads came over to talk to me because um, they were quite impressed that someone actually had a Seattle Seahawks stock because they were not easy to get hold of at that point in time. Um, and, you know, I, I used to watch American football with my dad on Sunday afternoons and it was a you know, big thing that we did together. And so John and Rich, I think probably James came over to talk to me and we got chatting and then it turned out that they were role players They were all a year older, but had decided to stay in halls because it was just cheaper and easier. Uh, And Ethel's was a really lovely hall of residence as well. So we started chatting. I became their friend. They invited me to join their gaming group. So John um, gave me Shirley the Dwarf. It was somebody else's character. I inherited her. Apparently she might have been a him originally, but nobody was entirely certain because the beard was a bit confusing. Uh, and, yeah, I loved playing Shirley. She was absolutely wonderful. So that was my introduction to gaming and to and products in general.
0: Yeah, and so how long were you playing that for then? Was it a campaign or was, oh, it it, was just a um,
2: one-offs? John basically had been running... RuneQuest, I think it was second edition. Since he'd been at school, but somebody'd stolen all of his rule books, so he ran it all from pretty much from memory and whatever scraps he'd managed to gather. Uh, so it was just sort of like a homebrew campaign, and it involved all sorts of of nonsense. Um, we ended up with a long-running vampire nemesis uh, who just dogged our every every footstep and you know one of the last things I remember the closing part of the campaign was us escaping in a boat as the crimson bat came down to destroy the city we just fled (laughs) it was great I really enjoyed it
0: so, so as well as gaming, what you're known for is you're immersed in horror and in uh, science fiction literature. So was that was that happening around the same time as well?
2: Um, I, I mean, when I was small, I was very much, I liked books about horses and ballet and dancing. Um, and it wasn't actually until um, really my third year at comprehensive school when my English teacher, Mr. Kirk, uh, one of our set books was The Dark is Rising, and it was kind of like, wow, th- this is amazing stuff. I love this bit. And we also did the owl service a year later with one of our other teachers. Um, so, you know, we got to do some really interesting literature. Uh, we also did one called I Am the Cheese, which is a, a book by a Canadian author, which is really, really creepy. And with all three of those, it was a case of where you, you were set like, you, you must read this chapter by the next lesson. I kind of read the entire book. Um, and <laughs> for all of them, because they were really interesting. So that was when it really started. And then I discovered Alan Garner, Anne McCaffrey, all that sort of things. I, I mean, my dad had actually taken me to see Star Wars when I was seven years old on a very, very, very wet holiday in Lowestoft. And there was nothing else to do but go to the pictures to see this this, this science fiction film that everybody was talking about, you know. Um, so it was. it's also, I blame my dad for that completely so that kind of got me into more of the sort sort of the space opera fantasy side of things i've never been a gigantic hard science fiction fan star wars the dark is rising uh it was all the slippery slope from there on in
0: when you moved from uh university did you continue gaming and uh, what were the kind of other games that you were playing around that time
2: the gaming group had, had made me gm very very early on i mean i think i'd only been playing for about a month or so when they said, you know, uh, we want to play something else. Because it was a, most people in the group were GMs as well. So we, we did a variety of systems. We weren't just playing RuneQuest. So we did Master, Space Spacemaster, a little bit of Merp. We ended up doing some Shadowrun later on when a new player joined a year later. So, you know, we'd call it Cthulhu, obviously. Uh, but my I was given Redbox D&D and told to run it for them. So, you know, that was my first GMing couldn't I didn't feel that I could surprise them with that so I got Talislanta based on the whole no elves advertising you used to see in all the gaming magazines so I went and tracked down copies of that and I adored running that so I ran that all through my degree towards the end of my degree we got a new um, sub-warden at Ethel's who uh, was at Durham University and he was a member of Treasure Trap uh, which was the live role playing organization so he started running werewolf for us that he folded into our gaming group but then I also started going to Durham and doing live role playing so when I stayed around for my PhD at Newcastle um, I was still table topping with new people who'd come through and were living in Ethels and going through to Durham and doing LARPing as well and then after university just when I got my PhD I moved out to Canada to work there for a year and I joined Robin Laws's gaming group. Partly uh, Robin's fault I ended up in Toronto in the first place, to be fair, because me and him used to have massive arguments online about what he was going to do to Talisanta. And I didn't always agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> but I spent a lot of time playing Feng Shui and testing various things with Robin. And then whenever we went back to visit Toronto after that on holiday, we usually used to fly in on a Thursday, roll straight off the plane into Robin's game group as. Uh, me and Richard, my husband, as guest NPCs, so we got to play test all sorts of wonderful things with Robin's group going on over the years. Which was how, of course, I ended up working on Dying Earth.
0: Of course, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, Tellus is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I don't know the game, but that's kind a of very setting rich, isn't it, as a game?
2: Incredibly setting rich game, yeah. So it was this this whole world. Uh, with and, and a whole choice of um sort of like character archetypes that you could pick from the 20 system uh and it it made sense to me i loved the world and the storytelling and i felt that i could tell the sorts of stories i wanted to tell in that and it was one of my happiest moments because i created a little campaign um for for the, the the guys to run through um and they had a mentor figure and at the end of it he just he sort of Their last scenario was basically escorting him to get him to the place he wanted to die because he knew his time had come. He was old. He'd done everything he needed to do. Um, I got into so much trouble for not warning them that this is what was going to happen and the fact that they didn't get to say goodbye to him. Um, I, properly, so I thought, like, okay, I'm, I'm obviously doing something right. The fact that they're sufficiently invested that they're annoyed at me that they didn't get to say their fond farewells to their mentor.
0: I did not realise that you were part of uh, Robin Lawsy's group. So what's Robin like as a master?
2: Oh, it's a huge amount of fun. Robin was very inventive, and of course, that the whole thing is that we were testing all sorts of different bits and bobs, um, and it was a really friendly and welcoming group um, that. The interesting thing with robin's group was that they were they were great at coming up with plans and then talking themselves out of them (laughs) so i became the element of chaos uh which was a huge amount of fun um you know i would they would come up with a plan i'd go right we're doing that then and then they just kind of get swept along so it it was great it was really interesting to to see robin gming be involved in him developing new systems new setting new games and things um and you know they I I spent a lot of time with Robin and Val, um, his wife, because they, they effectively adopted me because I didn't know anybody else out there apart from them and the games group. It was largely his fault I actually applied for well actually I wrote a speculative letter to the research department at one of the hospitals in Toronto not realizing they actually had a link to the department I was doing my PhD in in Newcastle so I got the job on on that yeah no I'd like you said I'd argued with Robin on message boards about what wizards were going to do with Talislanta, and then I'd actually met him at Gen Con in Milwaukee in 1994 uh, and we'd, we'd had a meal together in a, in a restaurant. And I think that's the same time I met Rob Hines. So, uh, mm-hmm. and we'd sat and we'd, you know, we'd got on really, really well and kept in touch after that. And then when I was looking to go do research in North America, because that was always sold as the the great, the great adventure of, you know, of research is to go, go do something in North America. It's fantastic. So yeah, uh, the job was terrible, but I really enjoyed being in Robin's gaming group. <laughs>
0: For for some reason, I have always associated you with uh, lapping because I've heard stories before about um, your your, your experience of lapping. Now bear in mind that my only experience of lapping is um, going away for a weekend and being hit by um, cricket bats by my friends. That's all my only experience of, of doing it. It seems to have been a growth. Um, growth thing in the 90s,
2: is, is that true to say? Treasure Trap, really quite old now. Um, Durham University is one of the oldest live role-playing societies in the country. God, is it, it's been well over 30 years, I think. Well, well over 30 years, because heck, it's... <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it But it has had this real sort of renaissance and coming on, and it's it's gone... I mean, when, when we speak about LARP, you know, our foundations in it were pretty much, you got dressed up in tap medieval costume, you ran around the woods hitting each other with foam swords, gaffer swords. It's a lot more sophisticated than that now on the whole. What most people think of as LARPing now is what we would have called an interactive mm. uh, rather than, you know, sort of like the running around the woods. I don't like mud and I don't like being cold and wet. So the whole running around the woods thing was was never a huge amount of fun. Uh, plus the fact I could never work out the damage system. So as soon as anybody hit me, I used to just fall over because that meant they left me alone for a start. And it was easier than trying to work out all the maths. We used to have a once a week social called the interactive, um, which was the bit that I really, really enjoyed. And that was a lot more fun for me. From that, we made really good friends. It's how I met Richard, my husband as well, because he was at Treasure Trap, because he was at Durham University. And then things kind of developed and we were doing something. We were involved in something called 11th Hour, which was people who'd been in Treasure Trap, who were friends, who were then running weekend long events at youth hostels uh where there was a great deal of interactive social stuff, but there was also an overland so that you could run around and hit things with with your gaffer swords, uh, although they were usually a lot better quality at that point. And that just kept kind of developing and sort of like, you know, our friend base expanded. And then I got involved in something called Company of Crimson, which was being run by Friends of Friends, which was a Victorian LARP with mythosy overtones, and then that developed into um, the League of Crimson, which was 1920 set. And then that developed into Codename Crimson, which was set during World War II. And then all of us got real lives and got really far too busy for doing any of this nonsense. So that kind of went by the by. Um, and it's now mostly Richard who does the LARPing. And he goes off to these amazing ones at Polish castles and stately homes and things and, and runs around, you know, sort of doing Downton Abbey and, and wizardy stuff.
0: And so how did they play out? Are you given a, a scenario and uh, some character tips? And how do things result? are resolved? Because it, does it remove the gamey aspect to it? or? What?
2: Um, It depends on what you're doing because the, the British style is actually quite different to sort of like the European Nordic style. Uh, I've not done a huge amount of Nordic LARPing. Uh, but the, the sort of the British style is you get your character and you have certain goals that you want to achieve through the course of the event. So you you have your information, you interact with characters and you're trying to achieve your goals as you go. The sort of Nordic style is more a fact that you have your character. There are no secrets, particularly there are no goals that you're trying to achieve. It's more about the character interactions and the stories that you build together. Um, based on sort of like discussions that you have with your fellow players. I suppose that the nearest one I've really done to that was uh, an absolutely amazing one we did a couple of years ago, which was mostly female players. So we were all the uh, radio operators coordinating the RAF pilots on on sort of like protection raids uh, during the Blitz. And it was absolutely stunning. So we had our characters... And we turned up and we were parts of watches and we built our relationships. And it was all about the relationships that developed while we were also plotting German bombers coming in to to hit London and various other things and directing the guys who were off in a different room being the RAF pilots. And it was all set up. We had sort of like a radar pinger. We had all the desk. We were shoving the little tokens around. We had the headsets, the lot. And that was there was still a certain amount of task in it because obviously we had this task to do, but it was a stunning piece of sort of like character involvement and development, and that took place over the part of a day, and it was a really moving experience, sort of like at the end of it, um, because no matter what we did, we couldn't stop, we couldn't get enough planes in the air to stop London being bombed. Um, So that was... It was a very, very special LARP, that one. Um, and so you you don't necessarily, you're not rolling dice. I mean, a lot of game systems will rely on rock, paper, scissors to, to sort of resolve things. Um, so it, it's not, you know, you're not actually hitting anybody or anything. Um, so there's this huge variety of systems out there that will help you depending on what it is that you're trying to do. Rich is more of an expert on that because I haven't really done a huge amount of that for a
0: while. But. It's, it sounds, though, is that the, you get to a level of intensity that's more than um, your, your tabletop role-playing games.
2: You can do, yes. Yeah, yeah you can do, or particularly if you are in intense situations over a prolonged period of time. Because obviously most tabletop games, we're talking, what, four hours, four to six hours probably. Hmm. You know, gone are the days when we used to game all weekend like lunatics. Um, so, yes, if you're inhabiting a character for, for two to three days, it can get very emotionally intense. Which is why a lot of the really heavily character based ones that um, sort of run in Europe, they, they have sort of like downtime rooms and sort of like safety people that you can just go and decompress somewhere else so that you can kind of come away from that. And you do sometimes get this whole bleed thing where it's quite hard to sort of come away after the event and sort of return to normal life, that was certainly a thing that a lot of us had with Wing and a Prayer because it was it was superb, but it was incredibly intense. Um, like you said Saturday morning to Saturday evening, learning how to be radio operators and and doing all the and the, de- and the plotters and and moving everything around, and then all the emotional involvement as well because of course we all knew what the history was um, because it was one of the reasons we were interested in doing it. So, yeah, you can get very, very emotionally involved in in the larping.
0: It seems to me as well, from your writing, that having the richness of the history behind um, your know, the games and the material that you produce is very important to you.
2: Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So do do you feel that that's a a key component to good role playing?
2: For me, it is yes, and I think some of that does come from the larping experience because having been a LARPer, that has informed some my, my tabletop gaming as well. You know that the things have moved between the two. Um So yes, I do like the immersion because it it can get you really engaged. It can bring that extra level of of detail and depth and engagement with it if it's thoroughly grounded. And I I know I've said this before to various people is the fact it's also a lot easier to sell the lie if it's rooted in truth and reality. And one of the joys of working on a historical game, of course, is the fact that you can do that reasonably easily. And a lot of the time, there's such weird, weird stuff out there anyway. People wouldn't believe you if you actually made it up. So you can just tweak it ever so slightly to turn it into something that, feels real, but absolutely isn't.
0: And and you've mentioned uh, the mythos and Call of Cthulhu, and obviously that's a big part of your life now. Um, So tell us about that and about how um, you came to be in the position that you're in today.
2: (laughs) Totally by accident, as these (laughs) things usually are. (laughs) And LARPIC. Well, I wrote a very, very cheeky letter to Watsy back when I was at university, when they'd taken over Talislanta, Lanta, um, which was how I ended up at Gen Con and how I ended up meeting Robin. And it was just basically sending them in little scenarios that I'd written for my Talislanta game. You know, I went to Euro Gen Con a couple of times down at Rye, Canber Sands, bless it, met the guys from Nightfall Games. he paid for me to go to the, the Gen Con in Milwaukee to run Talislanta games for them at the convention and work on the booth. Because I knew the nightfall lot, I then ended up doing bits for sleigh industry. So it's kind of like it was in from there. As and as far as where I am now, um, we'd played Call of Cthulhu at university. We never played any of the campaigns. It was it was our light relief break game between campaigns for other systems. So we'd pop in, we'd do a one off, and then we'd go back and get on with the campaign for something else. You know, I'd I'd never played masks. I'd I'd never done um, horror on the Orient Express, apart from one scenario uh, when on the night, the first night of the uh, British lottery, national lottery, we all went round to James's house, got a curry in and did one of the episodes from horror on the Orient Express as sort of like an old university friends get together thing, which was really sweet. But that's the only bit of it I've ever played. <laughs> I've never played the rest. Um, I know I should revoke my Chaosium membership right now <laughs> on those grounds alone. The reason I ended up at Chaosium, we were down at a dragon meet. Uh, we were talking to, well, Rich was talking to Sarah Newton, uh, and she was talking about this game called Acton Cthulhu she was working on with Chris Birch. And Rich mentioned we were doing Name Crimson. Sarah said, if, if I was interested in doing any work on it, I should get in touch with Chris. That was around the time that I decided to leave lecturing because I'd, I'd had enough. We were thankfully in a, a financial position where it was we were sufficiently OK that I could leave work and attempt to make a go of being a writer. And um, so I, I wrote to Chris. I sent him Cogs, Cakes and Swordsticks as my writing sample we got talking. He told me he was going to do the uh, Act on Cthulhu Kickstarter. And originally, I was just going to be the research assistant. I was going to do all the research and then pass that on to the the main author, who then backed out. So I kind of ended up as the line editor on that by default, because there was nobody else to do it. And I remember thinking, £8,000, that's a lot of money. What if we don't make it? That would be a bit embarrassing. And then (laughs) watching it go completely berserk uh, and 14 books later, that was kind of it sort of thing. So when I'd done what I could on that line, I, you know, left to go do other things. I got everything lined up. I was going to do extra supplements for cogs and cakes. And then Mike came to me, Mike Mason, and started offering me bits and bobs and then um, offered me the behemoth that is masks of Nyarlathotep. And that's kind of one of those scenarios that campaigns that you don't say no to you're not going to get that chance again I was already working on children of fear at that point but that's a separate story and uh so yes that's how it and sort of mask and I, Lathotep, was really my proving ground to show what I could do and then I was you know taking on more editing work for chaosium and then was it two or three years ago now I was actually taken on full time um as the associate editor for call of cthulhu and then, following on from that, of course, there's the rivers of London.
0: And we are about to start uh, Children of Fear. I'm very excited about it. Next month, uh, we're going to start the campaign with my group who've uh, been through Two Headed Serpent, and so they're very keen uh, to play. So, tell us something about this because I know that it's been a long time in the <laughs> in the development, hasn't it?
2: It has. This basically all comes down to uh, being at Gen Con five and a half years ago now. The Medifius booth was on one side of the aisle and the Chaosium booth was on the other side of the aisle. And it was just after Moon Designs had taken over Chaosium. Uh, and I knew I probably really should go over and talk to them. And I, I sort of like I vaguely knew the, the people from Moon Design because, of course, I'd, I'd been at... Um, convulsion and continuum over the years so I'd met them but I was sort of doing the whole shy thing a bit cheeky and a bit forward uh you know being terribly British about it and I went to see Robin on the Pelgrane stand and Robin root marched me back across the 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 hall and presented me to Jeff and um just but the introduction was hi Jeff this is Lynn Hardy just mm-hmm, hire her At which point I nearly (laughs) fell over because I wasn't used to robin's (laughs) wearing. And I'm sort of like, oh, my God, what do I say after that? Um, So I then went and had a chat with Jeff and we talked about what I'd like to do for Chaosium. And because I still hadn't learned my lesson after Shadows of Atlantis, I pitched a gigantic campaign. Which was originally going to be based on a lot of the research that I'd done for Shadows of Atlantis, but never actually used We um, thrashed out uh, a pitch that Mike was happy with, and then I started doing the research and writing on that. And then Masks of Nyarlathotep happened, which kind of, you know, took up two years of my life, (laughs) which kind of put things back a bit. Um, But it's always been sort of like ticking along in the background while other things have been worked on. So it was a real, it was a really weird feeling last year when we finally managed to get it out because... It has been a huge chunk of my association with Chaosium. And it's kind of, it's out there now. It's escaped into the wild.
0: Yeah, I noticed that the forward was signed by you on May 2020, so 12 months ago.
2: And that had been updated numerous times as well. (laughs) Every year, is it coming out? No, I'll change the date again.
0: (laughs) For those people who are not aware of the campaign, what's the the pick for for the campaign?
2: Right, uh, well... It's, um, oh, how to do it without putting spoilers in.
0: Yeah, that's a tricky bit. It is,
2: isn't, isn't it? it? <laughs> it's quite a spoiler-heavy one. Uh, it's a campaign that takes you, uh, based Journey to the West. It's Journey to the West for Call of Cthulhu, shall we put it that way? Because it was very, very heavily influenced by the story of Journey to the West, which to those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s in Britain is monkey,
0: And and it is a a very uh, rich and detailed journey, isn't it? The experience of traveling through Asia is part of the experience of this, isn't it? So Mm -hmm. tell us about the the research and uh, some some of the uh, things that have inspired you to uh, go into this area.
2: Like you said, originally, it, it wasn't actually intended necessarily to be that. This is one of the really weird things where the research told me that I was looking in the wrong direction. I'd, I'd had this discussion with Jeff about various things, but I'd, I'd got all these interesting notes on India from Shadows of Atlantis um, about different myths and legends that I thought would make an interesting basis for a campaign. But as I started to do more research on the areas that these myths and legends were associated with, certain things kept cropping up, which I'm not going to mention because they would be a massive spoiler. And it was it was one of those really weird moments where you go, No, what I thought this was going to be isn't what it it should be, because the research is pointing me in this direction repeated in a different direction repeatedly. So it's like, well, why don't we go and have a look at that then? Because that would also be really interesting, even if it isn't what I had in mind to start with. That's what happened. That's why it ended up being in a lot of the places it was. And as I was starting to, that's when Journey to the West came to the fore. And it was sort of like Xuanzang kept cropping up uh, and other things, which I'm not going to mention. So it's like, no, let's let's go look at those. Let's see what we can use of those to incorporate in. And and that's really where that campaign came from.
0: It's fair to say, isn't it, Lynn, as well, that there's moments of uh, real horror in this as well. I think it's the first time I've read a supplement where the hairs on the back of my neck have stood up. they the thought of delivering it. So uh, people should be aware of that, shouldn't they?
2: Yes, they should. And that's why we we did put... um, It's it's for mature readers um, because of the nature of some of the stuff in there. Uh, And there is sort of like... There's the the content warning in the front. There's also um, other... Sort of consent boxes and things throughout the text there because it is a mature campaign and you know it has to be treated with respect um and maturity
0: now my, my group of uh, as i said been playing two-headed serpent and they're quite keen to do this in the pulp mode and i know that it was originally originally uh, written to be done in uh for what better of a better word the purist uh, uh, call call it cthulhu mode. I like yeah? to call it classic. Classic classic <laughs> mode. Let's call it classic <laughs> mode. And I know that there's some call like boxes to help keepers uh, do it in pulp. Thing. I try and convince my players that like, it might not be the best mode to play it in. What do you What do you think?
2: I I personally I think it could work at pulp, but I think you would potentially lose some of the the darker moments of horror through doing it in pulp. I mean, it would certainly work as your Indiana-type Jones adventure because of where you are and what the places you're visiting and some of the people who were actually in those places doing very Indiana Jones-type things. But, yeah, I think you you could potentially lose some of the quieter, darker moments through that.
0: The the other thing I'm concerned about is you've taken a lot of time to be culturally respectful. I'd worry that if it was in a pulp mode, there'd be a... It's that superficiality of uh, potentially a pulp that you would lose some of that kind of reverence for the subject matter.
2: You might, you might, yes. I would, I would hope not, um, but it is a potential danger if if people do sort of go totally gung ho on it. Yeah, there is that potential danger. Um, obviously, as a white writer writing about campaigns set in, in you know, sort of like Northern Asia you do have to be respectful because it's not, you know, it's not my heritage. And um, that's why I, uh, we had, oh, thankfully he volunteered, um, although we were going to go look for someone otherwise. Chris Watkins um, did and his his wife, they checked all of the Buddhist stuff to make sure that that is all legit. There is nothing in there that is offensive or that I've misunderstood. Uh, you know, so that's, that's all been checked out. They're both ordained Buddhist uh, priests so that, you know, that's all been taken care of, because the last thing I wanted to do was cause offence on that front. And yeah, you know, part of the reason for setting it there was we know that most of the players are going to be white Westerners. Part of the underlying idea was the sense of horror caused by the mythos, but also the, the sense of not really understanding where you are in the world, because this is an unfamiliar part of the world. And we're hoping that people won't just play white characters going through it, but we understand that a lot of people will. But yes, that that whole one of the reasons for choosing that area is because historically certain bits of it there was very little known about at the time, uh, and there is that culture shock to help just sort of unsettle the characters even further, so they're totally out of their depth. You know, it's not horrible things happening in a familiar surrounding; none of their sort of usual support mechanisms or methods of contact are available to them, so they they are much more deeply involved in the the horrible things that are going on around them.
0: Yeah, and, you know, after initial read, I've learned so much about the area and uh, the geography and some of the uh, cultural aspects of it. So it's a a real achievement. And, you know, I know that you've been working on and Nerflotep and I think it's right that KLC revived some of those uh, classics. But... I think genuinely that uh, children fear is going to be a classic of the future. you know I, I do hope that people take it up and and start playing it because it deserves to be played.
2: Thank you. you're making me blush now <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to playing it so thanks thanks for uh spending this time with us, uh, Lynn, and uh, you're going back to face the games master screen.
2: Oh. Is it scary? <laughs> You'll be fine. You of tea. <laughs> I, I,
0: I would do as a precaution. <laughs>
2: okay, I'll get the kettle on then. <laughs> Thanks.
3: Hi, this is Tristan. I didn't realise quite how nerve-wracking it would be to record my first, last and everything for posterity but many thanks to Dirk and all my fellow grognards for the opportunity to do so. It has been a wild RPG journey since I started listening to the podcasts sometime in 2019. Dirk was talking of post-apocalyptic gaming as the theme for 2020. Little did I know that post-apocalyptic was actually wildly optimistic compared to the actual year to come. In late 2019, I was inspired by Dirk, Blythe, Ed and Daily Dwarf, to open the hatch and thaw out of the RPG Deep Rio to test the vestigial RPG muscles. On procuring Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition for my birthday in the autumn, I started slowly with an outdoor game of lightless beacon in Finnish with my friend Yoni from nearby Nagoya. Soon thereafter, I bumped into Mick at a pub, who was keen enough to play a game and offered his flat as the first venue for a monthly group. I was simultaneously seeking out RPG groups to play with in Japanese, just to see what the local players in Nagoya and Toyota were up to. Then the viral apocalypse intervened to stop in-person play. There was considerable discussion of moving to virtual platforms among all the folk in Europe and the US stuck at home, at computers, nursing serious hobby habits. I joined the virtual grog meet in the spring of 2020 as my inauguration to online gaming. Thanks to Dave, Patterson and Gaz, especially for those most enjoyable early online games of Down Darker Trails and Pendragon, respectively. The welcome from all of the Grognard community has been a genuine lifesaver in uncertain times. Special thanks must also go to the virtual proprietor of the Prancing Pony, I mean the Mitchester Arms, Dr Mitch, for bringing together so many bedraggled hobbits seeking adventure. Anyway, I have dragged out the intro somewhat, and perhaps I should get around to my first... I was born in finland and spent most of my childhood in various nations in europe the longest stay of six years or so being in west germany near bonn my parents five brothers and i lived in a castle on the rhine with a view of the drachenfels and the siebengebirge from our bay window overlooking the river to this day whenever i have the chance to play in the right land of wufferup i feel deeply nostalgic for the vineyard covered mountains of uncle where i lived my older brother Yonne brought ad and D home from boarding school in London, one winter holiday, and he ran it for any younger brothers who could hold a pencil to a character sheet and roll a die. We were eight, six, and four years old at the time. I still have fond recollections of the secrets of Bone Hill, Isle of Dread, the Palace of the Silver Princess, and In Search of the Unknown. After a steady diet of chess, stratego, diplomacy, and risk, this represented quite a change to the nature of tabletop play. The ideas from D&D were soon put to good use in recreating as much of the dungeoneering experience in precocious LARPing experiments, with all the brothers kitted out in cardboard plate mail and swords. House-moving boxes were fashioned into slides to cover the wooden staircases, my parents' mattress doubled as a falling wall trap, and the attic proved ideal as a sword-fighting and armour-testing arena. We had all manner of wonders to contend with other than the game content, due to nigh on annual floods filling the basement, decent winter snow on the mountains, and giant hogweed to slay in the lower gardens. The biggest inspiration from D&D at this time was from the fictional pointers in the Deities and Demigods book, where Fritz Lieber clashed with Lovecraft and Finnish mythology from the Kalevala. The latter is one campaign setting I have yet to try out. Gangbusters also made an appearance during these years, but the gangster life was a little harder to emulate at our age, despite the fantastic maps and attractive setting. The second season of playing D&D was with the acquisition of the Moldvay Red and Blue Basic and Expert sets, fairly soon after arriving in London in the mid-80s. But by the time all the family had settled in Kent, I think Games Workshop had attracted my attention sufficiently to diminish exclusive interest in the Dragons game. White Dwarf was at issue 100 by this time, so I missed the issues including a greater variety of systems. This interest in Games Workshop and all things Citadel soon included a migration to Warhammer Fantasy Battle, Warhammer 40,000, and Warhammer First Edition. The other games that caught on at home were Judge Dread, Dark Future, Space Marine, Hero Quest, Not Glorantha, and TMNT. While I had been in Germany, occasional gems of British game and pop culture had leaked into my school – and it was mind-blowing each time. The first of these encounters was with the ABC Warriors in a second-hand comic at Flea Market in the school playground. A lifelong love for all things 2000 AD was immediately assured by the sight of Rojaws, Mechquake, and Hammerstein on a double-page spread of Jazzness. The second was the art of Gary Chalk for the Lone Wolf series of books arriving in an English-language book fair. The coloured maps and the mood created by each and every illustration lured me to the hobby like sirens to the rocks. My younger brother, Maxim, was engrossed by the Jamie Thompson ninja books at the same time, but he was a head-spinning breakdancer who bought Rocksteady Crew and Herbie Hancock singles with his pocket money, so perhaps he was just seeking the freshest moves. The more recent return to D&D was when I purchased Edition 3.5 and played a few games with my son, aged five. I have tried Fifth Edition once thereafter and survived dying easily thanks to a cleric in the party. I still enjoy my encounters with OSE and DCC but have no major attraction for the latest version as there are so many other shiny new systems to investigate. My last will probably have to include all the games played last weekend. I dodged a bullet by not signing up for weekend overtime at work and spent many hours on my regular games as well as two games at the North Star science fiction themed convention run by Graham Spearing and Dominic Mooney. The first game of the weekend was Saturday night's DCC, Frozen in Time, with my local group of players. The second was a a 5am session of Children of Fear with a globally scattered group from California, Manchester and Helsinki. The third game at North Star Convention was Mothership on Saturday morning UK time. For six intrepid spacers brave enough to check out what was going on at Nunsuak Station, a scenario by Carl Niblaes. It is such pleasure to run convention games where All the party members come to the table brimming with enthusiasm, especially when it is a new system for some of them. The final game was Ghost Orbit, and I must extend apologies to my GM and fellow players for losing consciousness, just as one of the NPC's heads was blowing up. The radiation and the shock must have been too much for Harvey, the robot engineer. I did regain wakefulness to see the tense finale of the session on Psyche Station, though. It was great to see what another system has to offer in a now fairly crammed space worker RPG niche. I'm still waiting to try Death in Space, Nibiru, The Expanse, Coriolis, and Stay Frosty, among others. The mechanics for Ghost Orbit were minimal enough that they could almost make a board game. I'm blessed to have had amazing opportunities to meet and play with the creators for various systems I'm really interested in over the last year. So thanks to all fellow grognards, especially convention organisers, for the gaming opportunities. The highlights of 2020 included Get Dirk's game of Leoness using Mithras. I still recall the smell of that mackerel in piquant blueberry sauce with the gustatory equivalent of mild horror. Lynn Hardy's introduction to Children of Fear with a Cyan chapter as a one-shot was a brilliant taster for the epic asia spanning campaign. An awesome game of diplomatic intrigue and hunting-filled Hawkmoon with Jason Dural and a couple of magical games of RuneQuest's Broken Tower with Diana Propst. It seems my gaming habits have coalesced around Chaosium-published systems. Now I fear that Pendragon will be seriously alluring when that appears in the new edition too. My everything is Call of Cthulhu for a variety of reasons. The first session I played of it was as a teen with my friend James, who lived on the far side of the woods near my house in Kent. He's now a doctor, living with his family in Australia, so perhaps there was something terrible enough to drive us to the other side of the world from those peaceful Wealden woods of old England. A game with investigators driven insane and devoured by hounds of tinderloss, which had appeared out of the corners of rooms, finished up well after dark. It was enough to scare me half to death on my lonely walk home. It was also around this time that video cassette and beer nights included the fantastic Stuart Gordon reanimator and From Beyond films, but I didn't get a copy of the game for myself at the time. Instead, I devoured the works of H.P. Lovecraft. The feeling of cosmic existential dread in the game has drawn me to Call of Cthulhu in the 7th edition in a way I never really experienced for earlier editions. My first copy was actually a 6th edition in Japanese, bought two or three years ago. What I love about the game is the incorporation of real-world history, cultures, people, and places to maintain a rich setting for tales of extra-dimensional and cosmic horror. There are so many ways it can be presented, and so many ways to bring archaeological or anthropological details to the game. I'm happy that many of the problematic political and racist opinions of Lovecraft himself are being addressed and countered with the new editing for the Masks of Nyal Ahttep campaign and Chris Spivey's Harlem Unbound, for example. I have always loved Lovecraft for his prolixity, and the vast chip on his shoulder for never completing college, which he always overcompensated for with his over-the-top wordy erudition and fastidiousness. He is still the most prolific letter writer after Voltaire, and Voltaire didn't write that many of his letters in English, so definitely the most prolific letter writer in the English language. I am currently running Masks of Nyarlathotep for my local group in Nagoya, and Children of Fear for the international group. I do love the research required for each campaign, and feel guilty constantly for not reading more widely in preparation. For some variety, I have run scenarios for Mythic Iceland, Cthulhu by Gaslight, and Cthulhu Icarus. There are many more settings or scenarios that would be so great to get to the table in the collection. I have had the pleasure of playing in games of Harlem Unbound, Dark Ages Cthulhu, and the aforementioned Down Dark Trails, but Berlin Wicked City Reign of Terror and Dreamlands are always calling from the reading stack for more attention and an outing to the tabletop. On the domestic front, my investigations into materials produced in Japanese have led to some amazing discoveries. Top of the list were the Sengoku-jidai Warring States Period setting book and the locally produced 1920s setting, mostly written by the same author, Yusuke Tokita. I got as far as translating one scenario from the burning of Mount Hiei mini-campaign for this setting. It was great to run a game involving very local history and include historical figures as NPCs at the recent virtual grog gathering. The party consisted of a country samurai, a tea master, a swordsman and an artisan. They had been requested by their Lord Obunaga to look into ominous goings-on at the temples of the warrior monks atop Mount Hiei, near Lake Biwa, and to deliver a scroll to the head priest there. The action started at Gifu Castle, so I spent one Sunday prior to the convention at the actual castle site in Gifu to get some ideas for the introductory location in the game. Not wishing to spoil the scenario, I will say little else about it. The illustrations and character profiles for the session were all sourced from Hokusai's sketchbooks, because the mood was far better than the manga-style artwork in the published version. I tried to incorporate some verses from No Noblaze, but it was much harder than expected. All that remained was some of the atmosphere written into the scant backstories for the characters. With all the classic campaigns yet to be run, pulp Cthulhu and Roman-era Cthulhu to be explored, and further translations of Japanese materials, I think my everything will keep me busy for some time to come.
0: Games Master
1: Screen!
3: Hello, welcome to the Zoom of roleplay
0: rambling. I've got uh, Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. It's been a long time since I've seen you. I've been busy. <laughs> maintaining the smooth running of democracy.
1: I wouldn't go as far as to say smooth running, but yeah, maintaining the running of it, yeah.
0: It's this part of the year that I feel like how Santa's mates must feel <laughs> abandoned for several weeks. Yeah.
1: yeah, disappear into the world of elections and then emerge again, blinking at the sunlight. Uh,
0: perhaps not Santa, a deer hunter like Robert De Niro in The Deer Hunter. We don't talk about your tour of duty, do we? We don't talk about
1: No, what I don't happen- talk about it. I've never been trapped in a little hut playing Russian roulette. But I've really been easier, actually. It'd been simpler. You don't know you weren't there, man.
0: It's good to have you back anyway. Okay. And today we're going to be talking about Call of Cthulhu and, in particular, Call of Cthulhu settings. Because let, let's face it, we're coming back to it, aren't we? We're returning yeah. to Call of Cthulhu. Why is it the game that we always t- return to? Because when we came back uh, into the hobby after that period of deep freeze, it was the massive step that we did. We had a, f- a bit of period where we fell out with it, but it's back. We're back with it. Why is that?
1: I think someone pointed out this when they did their uh, first, last and everything, where they said, you know, it was there everything, not because it was the favourite game, but it was always there. And I think it, it is a game that, it does have a durability to it. I th- I think it's two things. I think one is, it does have a multitude of settings, historical settings. So you can drop Cthulhu into any kind of historical setting and it it's it's immediately interesting. So you've got, you know, Cthulhu by gaslight, haven't you? I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Cthulhu by gaslight and you've got Cthulhu dark ages and there's a French revolution one, isn't there? There's down darker trails. There's all these different Cthulhu settings. And I suppose I think what was also interesting about it is how you can, you can dial it up and down to suit your needs. So you can have Cthulhu that's kind of proper cosmic horror. You're going to meet an athlete you're not going to get out alive. And then you can have another one where it's just some serpent people running a motel and sacrificing people, and you, they're kind of defeatable. And you can do everything in between, can't you? It's, it's a very, very flexible game.
0: Part of your criticism of it before, you were saying, well, all you wanted to do is be Indiana Jones. I think it's changed. I think that's changed. And I think you have changed your attitude towards it.
1: We've played Poop Cthulhu, and whilst I wasn't Indiana Jones, we got a chance to play characters who were like that. And once you've once you've done that for a bit, I suppose you then start to appreciate other, more subtler varieties of Call of Cthulhu. Get that out of your system a little bit. You've got Cthulhu there on the shelf, so you know you can do it again. And then you begin to look at regular Cthulhu for want of a better term, in a slightly different light. So rather than it being frustrated, you go, ah, well I'm not frustrated anymore, because I've got Pub Cthulhu. I can do that with Pub Cthulhu and it works really well. Um but but I can I can now go back to Cthulhu and go, ah right, well there's, there's this other subtler stuff going on that I can play around with, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's part. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because I know that when we did the uh, fungi from Yoga you were feeling like he wanted to do something and wanted to intervene or uh, prevent this cosmic horror from happening. And he felt it wasn't fun to have that agency taken away. But what I've seen in some of the scenarios and one shots that we've been playing is that you've grown to accept that and Mm. run with it a bit more rather than wanting to fix it or put it right, is actually just have the experience of it and take on the horror that it brings. So I agree I agree with you. I think the fact that we've had Pope. Cthulhu has made classic call of Cthulhu better
1: it has because you you can rather than being frustrated with classic Cthulhu you can go well Pope Cthulhu is is there that's doing what I want it to do and now this is this the classic Cthulhu doing something else that I can get into and appreciate and I think that's I think that's true yeah and it's it's interesting how I've got a, a friend who whose son got into d d and he's kind of son's 14 now, his sons into T D. And the next game he got was Cthulhu. The second game he got was Cthulhu. And he enjoys Cthulhu and gets a lot out of it and finds it really interesting. And I think it's because it is it is a very flexible game. You've got the monsters, you've got all that range of monsters in there, haven't you? You've got some terrible slobbering thing that lives in a lake that could eat you, or or you've got other things that are a bit more subtle. It's a good range of monsters that can do a range of things, and you can play it at a range of levels
0: that's been part of your charity work as we call it isn't it to try and <laughs> yes, bring on
1: yes yes get him off fifth edition
0: well it, it reflects <laughs> what we've been doing isn't it we've been playing fifth edition in eberron for 12 months on the back of playing two-headed serpent and we're going to rest D 5e for a while maybe for a long while
1: maybe for a long time yeah <laughs> yes
0: and we're going to go into call the Cthulhu, Children of Fear as the yeah. uh, campaign, and it's going to yeah. be a long running campaign because it's going to be a monthly thing. And uh, going into it, I've I've started to now think about it, think closely about uh, setting it up, and uh, because I think when I put it put it to the players, everybody wanted to do it in a pulp style, didn't they? They were keen to do it in a pulp style on the back of yeah. uh, two headed serpent. But after reading it. I do want to dial it down and not have it as high pulp as we had it for Two-Headed Serpent. Just don't think it'll fit. So I'm not allowed psychic abilities or uh, weird science. Just have you as competent people in the real world.
1: Again, I think that's the nice thing about Pulp Cthulhu, that you can, can, again, I suppose it it, it echoes what I've said about Cthulhu generally, that it's interesting how in Pulp Cthulhu you've got that sort of dialability of... Being able to ratchet up the pulp and ratchet it down a little bit, I think that's probably the best way. That's the best thing to. I mean, obviously, I've not I've not read the campaign because I'm playing in it, aren't I? But but looking at it on the surface, as you do, and that's probably right. It doesn't seem that pulpy, yeah. and it's not written for pulpy. I mean, Two-headed Serpent is written for pulp Cthulhu, isn't it? Yeah, and that comes across in the scenario, but but Children of Fear is not not specifically written for Pulp.
0: It has call-out boxes to help you enhance it for uh, Pulp yeah. Cthulhu, but as I've been going through it, I've not been convinced by those call-out boxes, and you know, the way that it plays in my head is, I feel that you need to experience the horror of it, rather than be able to punch it, punch its lights out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just do it, you could do it as just regular Cthulhu, couldn't you?
0: I could, but somehow I think it it won't be accepted by the, the group. Because, mm. you know, we've been doing in the book club, we've been doing Robin Laws's Guide to Good Games Mastering. And in there, he has these uh, character, player types. And he suggests that you yeah. try and assess your player types against these categories. And I won't go into the categories, but I put it to all of the groups that I play in. And I was amazed how many people were... Uh, book kickers.
1: But I don't think I was a book kicker. I was, I'm not a book kicker. I'm a book kicker. I'm a, I, was, I was a specialist. I
0: think. Specialist, yeah. So you always yeah. go for the for the magic user. Always go, user. For, the I
1: always go yeah. for the wizard every time. Or oh, the thief. If I can't be the wizard, give me the thief. Yeah, type. Thief type character.
0: So do you want me to translate that? Yeah, book kicker. That's an ass kicker in, in our... So oh, some, yeah. Somebody who wants to kick somebody's ass. So the yeah. pleasure that they get is just... Uh, having a fight and relieving yeah, the tension yeah. by killing stuff, and, yeah. it, and it and it surprised me, and I must admit, alarmed me a bit that so many <laughs> people.
1: <laughs> do you think it's our generation, though? Do you think do you think it's our generation that comes from? Like, because let's face it, we come from the generation of people who got into role playing via. You fight monsters and get treasure. I mean, that was most people of our generations way in. They weren't playing. They weren't. They didn't. They didn't come into it playing. I don't know, fate or a story game, did they? They came into it where you you fight monsters. You can be killed. Therefore, don't be killed. Be be a book kicker. Be someone who can kill it before it kills you. And that that stuff, that kind of mentality, is still there in a lot of people. I think it's yeah. probably there in me a little bit. I mean, yeah. when I create a character, I always think in the back of my mind, yeah, all right, I want to be the wizard, but I also want to be the wizard who's got a decent constitution and can take a punch if it comes to it, because that will happen. There's still that mentality there. And I think, I think it comes from that, that we we all probably come from a background of, of, of lethal games. When, when yeah. you got into role roleplay back in the day, they were all lethal. So you died a lot. You don't want to die. And you spent a lot of time fighting things. Whereas if, if you got, maybe if you got into it in the last 10 years, you were playing some story game which is quite hard to die and being killed isn't part of it. And it's all about creating a story. Whereas when we played it, and, and most of the people you play with and I play with, are of our generation, not all of them, but are of our generation, probably think, well, well, the story's fine, but I don't want to die. And I know I'll have to fight something, so I better make sure I can fight it and survive. Hence, arse kick. But well, that's my uh, that's my homespun theory on that, for what it's worth.
0: I think you're probably right. and But that's why I've got a bit of a reticence to go back to the group and say, I know you asked for a pulp. I'm not going to allow you to have pulp. I'm not going to allow you to have double hit points. I'm not going to allow you to yeah, yeah. be able to min-max like you normally do. You're going to have to churn through characters <laughs> every month or have a different character every month. Because I I don't think that they'll enjoy that.
1: Make it a bit pulpy, but not. Yeah. Not as pulp. Not as pulpy as, as two-headed serpent.
0: The other thing I was um, considering is having your investigators part of an organization. Because I did like that in Caduceus with two-headed serpent that you were part of Caduceus that you had a reason a rationale to yeah. do the things that you were doing. It gives you a motivation, doesn't it? If you're part of an organization. Yeah. And when we did Massenefflete we had um, that uh, library foundation that was funding your your globe trotting.
1: Good, so, good idea. It kind of motivates motivates to do what you do. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, I'm part of an organisation that that's what we do. That's what we do in this organisation. We investigate these things because if you if you just are, uh, just a kind of individual in Cthulhu. There's always <laughs> that thing in there. Why am I? Why don't I just walk away from this? Yeah. This is all very dangerous. I think I'll just leave. Some maniacs are trying to kill me and sacrifice me. I don't think I'll just go home.
0: I'm gonna go back to haberdashery or whatever. Or...
1: Yeah, whatever whatever I come for, yeah. Yeah, some some academic, I'll go back to university. I'll leave this, forget it. But yeah. if you have an organization, I suppose it gives you a, a sort of drive that you you, yeah. you have some greater purpose. And that's why you're in an organization.
0: I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the occult a swerve and get back to social sciences. Where I'm on safer ground.
1: Where i yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. One of the things I was going to do, and uh, this is a bit of uh, me uh, tinkering. I don't normally tinker. It's a bit of tinkering.
1: Tinkering uh, with what? Scenario?
0: No, tinkering with the rules. Oh, uh, oh with my man, it... whoa,
1: whoa, whoa, whoa. I know.
0: What are know. you? It <laughs> isn't like you, is it? Go on. So, so what I was going to do is, Give the organisation, the play, organisation, some characteristics. So you know, a bit like Blades in the Dark or King mm. of Dungeons, yeah. that they have some mechanical statistics around them. So, like credit rating, for example.
1: Yeah, what are you doing? You're hacking. Are you hacking? Is this hacking? Or is it mash- Is this a mashup?
0: This is a, a mashup. Hack? Is this a, a
1: mashup? A- You're doing a mashup.
0: I think. I think the kids are calling yeah. it a kit-, a kit bash. A kit bash. That's what they call d- it.
1: Is that what they call it? <laughs> well. Don't. All
0: right. <laughs> I thought. Well, I was thinking if you gave it some characteristics like credit rating, you could give it even a library use. So you could actually phone up and see, they could do the research for you, couldn't they, in the back office?
1: Yeah, that's quite a good idea as well, because sometimes you don't want to spend uh, skill points on boring stuff like that, do you? Again, the book, the book kicker mentality. That's so why I'm a book kicker as well. But you, you, there is that problem, isn't there? Of wanting you're spending points on on knowledge based things that you think this will be useful at some point. History it will be useful at some point, but only at some point. And then I might fail the role. So yeah, having a back office who can, who can do the research for you is quite a good idea because it frees you up to, to develop the more, yeah, survival and action skills rather than, yeah, having anthropology at 80%, which, which might at some point be crucial, but only, only one, only at that particular point really, you know, so it's not worth having.
0: It's a bit like Phil had uh, botany, didn't he? He, had, he put a lot of points in botany, and yeah. for the whole campaign over was it two years? He yeah. played it, and yeah. there was only one occasion when botany would have been relevant. He didn't turn up, did he? He, wasn't
1: he, he, he couldn't couldn't make the game yeah. <laughs> yeah. So That's so a good show, doesn't it? But yeah, if you've got a kind of organisation that you can contact that has contact with botanists, so you can you can do that. Yeah, that is quite a good idea, actually.
0: And here's my next bit, right? I was thinking of giving the group, the organisation, look points that you could buy. So it's only, it's only, they don't refresh, yeah. But they could get you out of a re, out of somewhere. So if you're in a desperate situation, yeah. you could call on the organisation as a look point. I like, it.
1: I like, it. I like it. I like these two things. But a word of warning: don't make a habit of it. Right. Don't don't be, mash, don't be mash Don't be kit bashing all the time. I like I think these are good ideas, but don't make a habit of it. I don't know how I feel about that. I know. Rules as written. I am a rules lawyer. We'll start are... making your own rules up. Do, do I
0: need to submit them for approval before we have the game?
1: Do well you, you ha- I consider I consider this this conversation is is a submission and I, I approve don't keep doing it don't yeah. do too much of it
0: the gavel goes down the
1: gavel goes down you may do uh, those two kit batches. yeah they're alright but um, they don't make a habit of it
0: I'll try not to I'll try not Good. to alright right, right, right,
4: right, right.
1: Right. <laughs> this cow in vexes gaming <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is right, 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 right.
4: thanks for the intro Dave I'm Steve, host of All Anthrex's Gaming Vexes, a podcast documenting my ongoing mission to run, or at least play, all of the RPGs that I seem to be incapable of stopping myself buying. And you'll see me uh, frequently uh, fiddling with something in my hands. Each episode, I get together with a group of fellow gamers that have either played a game I've run, or who've GM'd a game for me. We chat through what we've enjoyed about the game, and some ways we could have improved the experience whilst making a series of terrible jokes along the way. Was it hot chat action? Sometimes, we con game designers who really should know better to come along and talk to us about their games, and maybe run an actual play segment to give us an idea of their vision for their game. I've told this story before anyone. Our topics range from old school favourites like RuneQuest, through to some of those newfangled narrative games all the cool kids talk about, when you listen, I want you to feel as though you're sitting around our gaming table, taking part in our post-game chat and helping dispose of the last of the crisps and ale. I'll just wax my bowstring and think about the death of the tainted. Oh no, 898. Eight. So, if you like listening to people droning on excitedly about games in a range of regional British accents, All Anthrax's Game of X's is the pod for you, and you'll find it on your podcasting app of choice. On occasion, you may even hear something really insightful, but I'm making no promises. Over to you, Dave. Find the ponxes and make it a tie to <laughs> Keep it
2: high.
0: Right, so let's um, face the Master screen. So I'm going to erect this Keeper's screen in front of us. Okay, that's nice. To hide my secrets.
1: Of course. The Keeper's secrets.
0: Now, there's only a limited number of uh, settings here because these are the ones that we've played. And I put them on a table, and I'm going to roll apparently at random Mm -hmm. to reveal uh, some of these areas, and then we can have a chat about them, okay, and our experiences of playing in them. Here we go. 44. 44 44. is the Second World War. You played Actun Cthulhu in this setting, haven't you?
1: I've run I've run yeah. I've
0: never played it. I've never played it. When you got, no, that, no. When you got that game, Acton Cthulhu, <laughs> it, it, it was the best thing since sliced bread.
1: It was, it was. It's not now, but it was then.
0: <laughs> it is wonderful. I can't wait to get it to the table. Yeah. And I've never played it. I've never played it. So
1: You've never played it, but I ran it at comms. I did I did a few few games at conventions, yeah, of it. And it is good. I got the, the, well, I played the Fate version of it. There is a Savage World, the Savage Worlds version, wasn't there? And there's a a traditional Cthulhu version of it. But I I ran the Fate version of it. And I suppose what I liked about it, and I suppose what I still like about it, it's a nice, (laughs) it's a nice rationale. Nazis are the classic villain, aren't they? I mean, there's nothing redeemable about a Nazi. And the idea of the Nazis trying to harness the power of Cthulhu, makes perfect sense. And the idea that you're, you're the allies and you're trying to stop them. I mean, it's not always that you're trying to stop them. It could be an adventure where you just discover, uh, you know, you could just be regular soldiers who discover something going on. But, but sometimes part of Acton Cthulhu does have like Section M, this, this secret, MI6 type of operation that are actively trying to track down Cthulhu, Nazi Cthulhu kind of operations and stop them and that kind of thing. So it has all those features. I suppose like, um, like you were saying about an organization, it has those, those things within it that motivate you get very, you make clear motivations in acting Cthulhu. It's second World war. You've got to stop the Nazis and the Nazis are using Cthulhu. So, what more motivation do you need? You know, that, that problem of, what we were saying earlier, of I think I'll go home and do some social sciences. Well, no, you can't because the fate of the world is, at, is literally at stake, both in terms of the rise of fascism and fascists using Cthulhu. So you've got, you've got a double whammy of you've got to do something about it. You can't just go, oh, I not bother. Why am I doing this? Well, it's obvious why you're doing it. It's Hitler's harnessing Cthulhu, so stop him. And that, that's great, actually. It's really good because it's an exciting and motivating force behind it. And there's a lot of detail in it. And sometimes you think the detail is, I suppose, it's an, an odd thing because you think, well, I know a lot about the Second World War anyway. After a period of time reading the, the source material, I thought, actually, some of it, you don't really need it because maybe, it's again, it's a generational thing, but I know quite a lot about the Second World War because – you were kind of brought up with it. You watched the world at war, didn't you, on, on TV documentaries and all that kind of thing, and watched loads of war films. And I based, I based one adventure on Where Eagles Dare, Where Shantax Dare, which was based on the movie Where Eagles Dare. All those kind of things you've been brought up with. So you sort of think, oh, no, I don't even need on Cthulhu, really. I could just run a Second World War adventure using traditional Cthulhu. But, but it's still a good – it's a good setting and it's a good idea. Is a good idea, and it does work very, very well. And when I've played it with people, people have really enjoyed it and got into it.
0: So when when you say Fate and when you say Savage Worlds, they're they're pulp games, aren't they? So straight away, there's a pulp mechanics, and we're going to play a pulp game. However, when I've seen those Acton Cthulhu source books, they seem very richly detailed, which seems counter to the idea of the superficiality of
1: pulp. Yeah, there is. I I think you're right. There, there is a kind of strange contradiction within them to some extent, where there's a lot of historical detail in, but but why are you bothered about what kind of fighters and bombers? I mean, yeah, I suppose it it's there because it's there because all right, it's at your fingertips, all the facts. But yeah, you're right. You don't, you don't you sort of think, do I really need all this detail if it's a pulpy Second World War thing? And I think I think there is. Th- th- that said, I think there is a little bit of an inherent contradiction in it as well because it does talk about, there's there's bits of it that talk about making it real and, you know, that the Nazis are not just there to be shot. They are people and they might be misguided and some of them were just regular soldiers and that kind of thing. So in a way, it's, it's sort of, there's a kind of tug of war going on in it from the pulp side, but also an historically accurate side as well, which I, I know what you mean. It kind of sits at odds a little bit. And maybe, I wonder whether when I ran the Shantax Dare scenario, I think maybe I was drawn to recreating a war film because I suppose it short-circuited that dilemma of, is it pulp? Is it trying to replicate the Second World War in some way? But if you do a film, then it's a film, isn't it? So it's pulpy by, by its very nature. It's pulpy. Where Eagles Dare is a very pulpy film with... People running around shooting people. <laughs> that's that's and people enjoyed that. But I suppose it's a way of sidestepping that that dilemma that is is within Acton Cthulhu about well, you know is it yeah is it pulpy? But it's giving me all these facts. But then some of the NPCs are very pulpy. Some of the, the the evil Nazis in it are very very pulpy villains. So yeah, it's got the two things going on at once really. I suppose what Acton Cthulhu does though, thinking about it, builds into it the whole kind of network of the the Nazi organization, the the different sections of an organization, the command structure that it's got going on, and all the NPCs within it that that are running it. Like there's the Black Sun, which is one section of the, you know, the the SS that, that are dealing with Cthulhu, the Black Sun, and then there's another one, another bit of it. So I suppose it's giving you it's giving you more of a an alternate world, I suppose rather than just the second world war it gives you the second world war but then it also builds an alternate second world war where there are these organizations and these characters at work you know and then some characters on the allied side as well you know you've got that kind of thing going on so i suppose it builds that rather than just saying hey let's have a cthulhu scenario during the second world war which is easy enough to do but it builds – but I suppose what I'm trying to say is I wonder whether ultimately I'm interested in that. Yeah, I was interested in Cthulhu in the Second World War, but I'm not sure I was that interested in all this kind of detail about the different sections of the Nazi machine that are doing this and who's doing that and lots and lots of background on NPC. I know that's not, I'm not sure that's relevant. I used one of the NPCs, for example, in Where Shantaks Dare, and there was a load of, load of details about him. I think he was killed within 20 minutes.
0: Just to pick up a point that you were saying earlier when you said that the good thing about using Call of Cthulhu or using um, Cthulhu in your games is that you can have scaled, kind, you can have those kind of pulp adventures, but you can also have something that's a bit more... T- equally terrifying but not as cosmic and recently we played of this mental know-nothing which is in the good friends of Jackson Elias's fanzine for Ctho- yep. Call of Cthulhu and that is a World War II scenario where you drop behind mm. enemy lines you are on the way to the Rhine and you find yourself in this encounter which is very Subtle shifts of horror, isn't it? That that deals with horror in a very different way than Acton Cthulhu.
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. And let's suppose that's an example of where you don't need Acton Cthulhu to do a Second World War Cthulhu scenario.
0: Because all the way through it, it says Operation Varsity was something that happened, but don't get hung up on that. Yeah. This is this is a work of fiction. And, and, and you're right. I think we all have within our... Imaginations, a collective imaginations, and understanding of some of those landscapes from the Second World mm. War, yeah. as well as some of uh, the different factions and what was going on to create scenarios. So, I, yeah. I, th- I think what strikes me about um, of this mention or nothing is just that thing where it is very small, isn't it? Just a chance encounter that yeah. you just walk into, and it yeah. it's made it's made me realise that there is the possibility of having those scenarios that, that are not all about a set piece after set piece after set piece and that is the kind of mode I tended to go into because yeah. I've been playing Pope. I think playing that would just drop in some little bits of uh, unsettling information as, as, as you discover more of what's happening in this encounter I think uh, I learned a lot from uh, that, that scenario playing that scenario actually Paul, for canvassed people to ask them whether uh, to have it in this original Second World War setting or to put it in a more contemporary setting. But having played it, I can't imagine it being any other time, despite the fact that it didn't have all that kind of information behind it or infrastructure. It was just a, a, essentially a farmhouse encounter.
1: Uh, but I suppose the setup of it is you, you're parachuted in, so you land... It's a clever conceit that you actually land there, don't you? And suddenly you're in enemy territory and you find a farmhouse and you're drawn to it because you've been separated from your unit. So it's a useful... Yeah, I I know what you mean. How would you drop people into a farmhouse in council in quite the same way if they weren't parachuted in? Without giving too much away, even what's going on within it is sort of works because it's the second world war the people you meet and what's going on is and and i think the way you react to the people you meet because you're british soldiers and you you meet again i'm giving too much away but you you might meet the enemy and obviously your reaction to meeting the enemy is going to be a particular thing isn't it whereas if it's a car breaking down Mm -hmm. you're not going to react in quite the same way so it would lose something a little bit i think yeah yeah right
0: okay next up oh so this is uh 13 this is cthulhu dark ages
1: oh yeah i oh, like
0: this yeah we've been playing this uh recently haven't we um set in well it's it? like
1: it's like saxon yeah it's like saxon britain isn't it i mean you could you could crank it up to the middle ages i suppose relatively easily but it's actually set in like the eighth ninth cent pre-norman conquest britain is when it's actually set
0: I was thinking when we were playing it I was visualizing it like um, the last kingdom mm. I, I was envisioning Uther and uh,
1: yeah 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 no I love it I love it. it it's strange really because I think for a long time I uh, that's just going to be like a D&D isn't it it's going to be like a role room quest or something isn't it so really really what you're doing is it's swords and shields and and cthulhu monsters so what's pff, it's not going to be any different I don't know why I bought it, because I hadn't played it. I think it was like a weak moment, you know, like you do. And I thought, oh, go on, I'll have that. It was like Christmas time. I had some money. I thought, oh, I'll have that. Go on, I'll see what it's like. And I do think it's really, really good, because it's, it's absolutely not D&D or RuneQuest with Cthulhu Monster. And it gives you lots of detail about Saxon society, Vi- Vikings, Brit- Britain at that time. And it is really, really good. And the Cthulhu stuff fits in really, really well. Um, And it's got some nice um, alternative rules as well. I really like the sanity rules in it where you don't roll under your sanity. You actually have two skills. You have a natural world skill and a religion skill. Depending on what monster you encounter or what not necessarily monster, whatever you see, you roll your natural world or religion. If you make the roll, you lose sanity on the basis that, for example, natural world, if you go into the woods and you see some, Serpent people, for example, messing about in the woods and you roll your natural world. If you make the role, you know that there shouldn't be serpent people in the world. Because your natural world skill, your knowledge of the natural world. But if you fail the role, it's the idea that you have a a dark age or so medieval mentality and you go, Oh yeah, of course there are serpent people in the woods. Of course there are everyone thinks there are everyone believes that there are because it's the dark ages and people think there are monsters so when you see a monster if you fail your natural and the same with religion if you fail your religion role certain depending on what kind of thing you encounter you you just go oh yeah yeah i mean it's terrifying but um of course there's a dragon in the woods yeah (laughs) of course there is (laughs) which is not a neat twist on the sanity rules so the more you know about the world the more likely you are to go insane whereas if you're you're some kind of saxon bumpkin who believes all the superstitious nonsense you're more likely to stay sane because you just think oh yeah yeah there's ghosts goblins all sorts of stuff (laughs) i think it's a really neat neat rule that that makes the game actually a little bit different a little bit a little bit of a twist in there
0: what Just I nice. liked, what I liked about playing it is that it is very it, the way that it's presented. It, there's a lot of atmosphere with it, isn't it? It it really builds on the dark woods mm. and yeah. that kind of thing. But the other the other thing is, you know, normally with Call of Cthulhu, you are an individual alone in the world facing the horrors uh, mm. of the cosmos. In a lot of cases. And it's very individualistic. But I didn't get that sense. You felt like you were part of a community that was under threat.
1: Yeah, that that is part of it, that it you, you are part of a community. You're not you're not like an adventurer just off on your own investigating stuff. The idea is that you all live in communities because it's the dark ages and the world is dangerous. And there are Vikings in the north and behind your stockades. And there's also like hierarchies as well. That's why it doesn't feel like swords in Cthulhu. It's not like that. It's more subtle and there's more going on. It's really, it's really good and well done. You know, the, the research in it is good and interesting. There's plenty, yeah. plenty to go at.
0: Because those hierarchies come into play, don't they? Because in some ways, depending on your character, archetype, or your career, you've got certain limitations of your influence and what you can Mm. do within the world. And I suppose that's true of the 1920s and that kind of thing. But you feel it more acutely, I think. There's all kinds of rules and laws, conduct and way to behave that that the setting really draws upon, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And, and I like the idea that there's kind of Christianity and paganism there at the same at the same time. Those kind of conflicts of religion and religious beliefs that are going on than you imagine. They're very, very, very good. Actually, really, yeah. really enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. I need to run some more of it. Actually,
0: okay. Last roll on the table, and that is a zero zero. It's a hundred. I've rolled a hundred
1: on the table. No, fumble.
0: And this is Cthulhu in space. Judge Blythe Blythe, I put D- it to you...
1: Dirky durk D- 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 yes.
0: Of the Funky Bunch. I put it to you that Cthulhu in space is impossible.
1: What do you mean physically? Like, we're never going to get there. We're the, only, <laughs> the, only, the only thing we could do is pay Richard Branson a lot of money to get there. So it's a Ponzi scheme, isn't it? We're never going to get there. Do you mean as a scenario...
0: I think we I think we used to have these conversations when we were kids we, that we said that Call of Cthulhu is science fiction. It's more, more akin to science fiction than horror. There's horror elements in it, but it's a science fiction setting. You know, it's lovecraft presented it as far as we're concerned. It they're aliens, aren't they? They're aliens. That yeah, they're not. In- they're
1: not super. They're not supernatural. As in, they're not vampires and ghosts. And-
0: However, I think it's an imp- impossibility. To do a good space based call of Cthulhu thing, and I think this is a challenge for us, right? Mm. I like setting these challenges and then not resolving them, that's They're not
1: resolving it. them, yeah, it's part of it, isn't it?
0: Yeah, because <laughs> I, I think the brilliant film Alien has scuppered the chances of mm. having a good one,
1: yeah. I know what you mean. You, your instinct, my, my instinct to that dilemma of what you're saying well you can't do it is to say well, why not but once you start to think about it you start to think oh, it's been done better hasn't it by things like alien and that's that's the bar that you're trying to get to isn't that that would be the bar you're trying to reach and then if you're trying to reach that bar just go and buy alien rpg
0: how do you present a scenario or a campaign to your group of players without them instantly picturing in their head that it's going to be alien.
1: Well, there's that problem. I suppose the other issue with Cthulhu is that the whole premise of Cthulhu, whilst it is a very flexible game, but one of the key premises is the serpent people, or whoever, keep talking about serpent people, you know, the Migos, the serpent people, the shogoth, whatever it is, is, is alien and terrifying to these ordinary people. So whether you're a dark, you know, whether you're a Saxon warrior or a cowboy or a World War II veteran or whoever you are, these things that you're seeing are alien and un- otherworldly, aren't they? And that's part of the crux of the game, isn't it? Hence why the sanity rules exist because you've seen something that is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible, isn't it? That you've seen a, a shantak flying ahead over you or something like that but i suppose if you take it into space well you could you could do it kind of like well, all right this is space but no one's ever met an alien but almost once you're into that territory of space seeing something alien well you're in space aren't you you've seen something alien you're in space what were you expecting yeah, it comes to the territory, doesn't it? If, you, if, you're astro, if you're space explorers and you land on some colony and then you encounter some weird alien, well, yeah. The whole potency of Cthulhu is you, are, you, you're not, you open that door and you're not expecting to see this amorphous creature.
0: So a precondition of Call of Cthulhu is that it's on Earth.
1: Yeah, it's kind of grounded in some in some sort of reality, yes. Yeah. How,
0: about, how about, let's let's see how far we can go with this, right?
1: <laughs>
0: how about the dark side of the moon? A signal on the you dark can, side of the moon? Uh,
1: yeah, I think you could probably get away with it if it was NASA astronauts set five years in the future when they're building some lunar colony. You think, all right, you, maybe you could get away with that. That would perhaps feel... Okay. But I think if you're doing a spaceship's far future Cthulhu, nah, not sure, not sure. I remain to be convinced on that.
0: So I think that's a challenge. I'm going to give a name check to um, Paul Budowski's Valkyrie 9 because that's an an attempt to uh, Hmm. take Cthulhu into space. But I've not played that. And play's the thing, isn't it? So maybe we should.
1: To... Maybe we should. you maybe need to get that on the list, and, and and so we'll see. We will see if our us just talking, because that's what this is. Us just talking. Whether us just talking is right or not, or wrong? Yeah, <laughs> probably wrong. <laughs> it usually is. But
0: there's a whole host of settings that you know the the reign of terror, setting the French Revolution. I've got yeah, that. I really want to run it. That's a yeah, that's, that's good. A good. Yeah. Harlem Unbound. You know, I yeah. I know New York quite well and I'd be able to do that quite, quite well.
1: That's another yeah.
0: setting I'd really like to explore. Yeah. One of our catchphrases we said is stick a shog off in it. Are we saying after doing this that sticking a shog off in it is enough or do you think that it needs a little bit more?
1: Stick a shog off in it. And some historical detail. And then everyone's happy.
0: Put that on a (laughs) T-shirt.
1: Put that on a T-shirt. There has been an inspiring T-shirt on Redbubble.
0: Stick a off in space. Everyone might be a bit indifferent. (laughs) Cheers, (laughs) Blinder. See you later. Bye. Thanks to Lynn and Tristan for their contribution to this episode. I've been working on The Grubnard Files' fourth fanzine We produced the fanzine as a thank you to Patreon backers of the podcast. This time, it's not a single zine, but a bundle of no less than four little handmade efforts. The main zine will feature Tenerife Holocaust, Toon Thulu, a reminiscence from DM Mike of the Save for Half podcast, and a feature on White Dwarf rejections. There's room for some more, I'm interested in personal stories and artifacts and ephemera from your gaming past. Get in touch via the grognard file on Twitter or via the grognardfiles.com with your idea. In addition, there's the collected Daily Dwarf volume four, the latest in the Daily Dwarf's essay anthology, including Woofrup, D&D, MERP, and more. These are much better to read than they are to listen to in my stupid voice reciting them. You'll also get the long trailed missing pages from These World and we finally be available with some great illustrations from Simon Perrins. Finally, in all senses of the word, is my guidebook to the survival after a year of the apocalypse for you to read And preserve for future generations. All this will be available in November to patrons. Thank you for listening to this, Bobbins. I hope you enjoyed it. At a recent production meeting, Blythe and I sketched out plans until the end of the year, including something a bit special for episode 50. So there's at least another six months of this stuff ahead. Please, Invest in the future of the podcast by liking, subscribing, passing it on to old friends, reviewing it if possible. If you can, support on Patreon and it'll be very much appreciated as it'll help fund our additional projects such as the zine and dare we dream of a face-to-face grog meet event in November? Every month we send out a newsletter with the details of the book club one-shot club and other events and recommendations. A tip in the beret goes a long way. Thanks to all of our existing patron supporters, your tips are appreciated in these uncertain times. At the end of part two of this episode, I'll give some individual shout-outs and dispense some novelty virtual gifts to new patrons. Next time, Lynn returns to face the game's master screen. Blythe and I deploy our library use skills to review mythos related magazines and tell the story of an ill fated trip to Morecambe in 1986, where we attempted to scare each other to death, which culminated in a garden party. Until then, adios amigos.